Thanks for listening to Julie Goodnight's Horse Master Academy podcast, presented by Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. We'll take on a new horse training or horse care topic in every episode. Thanks for listening and enjoy the ride. I'm Heidi Malako and Julie Goodnight. Today we are going to talk about more behavior topics. And this time when I think you get lots of questions and complaints and just frantic people trying to figure out what to do, what do you do with herd-bound horses that want to stay together and we deem their behavior as, as bad, they're frantic, they're calling out to other horses, they're wanting to you know, get back to the barn if they're out in the arena. What do you hear people complain about the most and how do we solve this? The herd-bound nature of horses is a big one. It's one people complain about a lot, tend to call it things like barn sour, gate sour, herd sour, um, we, we tend to talk about it as if it's an affliction, but <laughs> in reality, it is one of the strongest instinctive drives of horses, and it's uh, labeled by the behaviorists as gregarious behavior. And gregarious simply means drawn to others, and it refers to the herd-bound nature of horses. The reality is that in all instances um, in the wild, and with feral horses and with domesticated horses, um, they need to be in a herd and it is their instinctive and, and very strong belief that their own survival depends on being accepted into a mm-hmm. herd. This drives so many behaviors of the horses that it's, it's, it would be impossible to talk about them all uh, in one setting. But um, the horse is, of course, a prey animal. Um, he, he is reliant on the herd really for only two things. The, you know, a lot of times when you ask people, you know, why is a horse drawn to the herd? What does he get from the herd? Um, a lot of people will uh, immediately say food <laughs> because I think that's, and that's true of dogs. Dogs are predators, not prey. Um, horses are not reliant on the herd for food at all. They can eat almost anything. If you just turn them loose, they will find the food. Um, Horses are reliant on the herd primarily for a sense of safety, a sense of security. There is safety in numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, A horse cannot be vigilant to his surroundings 24 hours a day. He has to sleep. He has to nap. And for at least an hour or two a day, he needs to actually lay down on the ground, flat out, sawing logs, as my father (laughs) used to say, um, in deep sleep. And he would never feel safe, a prey animal could never feel safe enough to do something like that without um, being surrounded by a herd. And so, and they take turns at that. You see it all the time. And so um, a horse is instinctively drawn to the herd. Um, They, no matter how, uh, when you introduce a new horse in the herd, no matter how mean they are to him, and they will be very, very mean to him, they'll say, no, we don't want you as a part of our herd. And that new horse will keep coming back and keep begging to be a part of the herd because in in his instinctive feelings he feels like he's going to die if he's not accepted Mm -hmm. into that herd 
And so um, beyond, uh, and, and so this is important for us because it, it, it speaks to the horses um, why they are such willing animals that seek out approval. Um, they are programmed to seek out acceptance into the herd. And when you can get that kind of um, seeking of acceptance aimed towards you, you can have the most incredible relationship with the horse. Um, so uh, we want to be aware of that in, in the way that we praise horses, in the way that we nurture them, and, um, and even in the way that we scold them when we don't approve of their behavior. But getting back to the gregarious thing, um, it is a fact of nature of horses. If there are horses, they are herd bound. And so we shouldn't really speak of it as some kind of an affliction. Right. Um, just, just because it is at times inconvenient to us. Um, but the second thing beyond security that the horse uh, gets from the herd is a sense of comfort. Horses are creatures of comfort. They like to lay down on soft things and roll and they lay in the sun and bask in the warmth and they, um, you know, hide in the shade and stay cool and they, they uh, swish each other with their tails to help combat insects and they, they rub and they um, massage each other in a behavior we call mutual grooming. And they, um, they are horses that like to feel safe and secure and comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, they like companionship. Um, they like to be taken care of. They like having uh, all horses like having um, a strong leader around them that's taking care of everything, uh, making all the decisions, watching out for danger, telling them when to eat, drink, when to lay down, when to go over here, when to go over there. Um, horses love that because it makes them feel safe and it makes them feel comfortable. So those are the two main things that horses get from right. the herd. And when... And, um, go ahead. I was just going to say, so knowing all that and hearing that, it makes total sense why two horses that are usually together, they've bonded, they've done all these things, they've watched out for each other, they've let each other take naps and groomed each other, and so they want to stay together. So help me, what's a scenario that you've seen where those horses want to stay together and it ends up causing a problem for the rider or causes us to look at, at it as that sour behavior instead of what's noticing what's really going on? Well, as I said, it usually, usually involves being inconvenient for us. <laughs> um, but the, so usually that involves separating what we would call buddies. And so you have to understand with, within a herd structure, there, there is a lot to a horse herd. There's a linear hierarchy. There's one horse in charge. There's one horse at the bottom of the pecking order and, and every other horse in between. And within all of that, there are also um, sort of sub-bonded relationships or sub-relationships between bonded horses. And in, in a herd, uh, depending on how large the herd is, a horse may have one or maybe at the most two horses that he is especially bonded to. Mm -hmm. And the behaviorists call them associates. Huh. We would call them buddies. <laughs> and um, so you might, your horse, might, let's say your horse is in a herd of eight or ten horses. 
which by the way, none of which have chosen to be together. We mm-hmm. forced them all together. Mm-hmm. Um, but your horse probably has one or at the most two other horses that are he is especially he likes wanted to. to hang out with, right? Yeah. And they hang out together, and you'll know which horses those are. I'm sure everyone knows that already about their horse anyway, but only bonded horses mutual groom. So in, in, in that herd of eight to ten horses, you won't see each and every one of them mutually grooming with each and every one. They only mutual groom with their special bonded uh, the, a horse, another horse that they have a special bonded relationship okay. with. And... And even within that relationship, one of those horses is dominant. Between those two horses, one of them is dominant and one of them is subordinate. And the dominant horse always begins the grooming and ends the grooming in in a some often, um, ang- you know, kind of aggressive way. With teeth. <laughs> um, with teeth, yeah. And so, um, so therein lies the typical scenario is when you have separated those two buddy horses. And so let's say, and we deal with this kind of stuff with our horses all the time. Everybody does because they're, it's an instinctive behavior of all horses. But So let's say I'm going to get one horse out to ride and leave the other one in the pen. My two geldings are, are very, very bonded. And, um, and unfortunately, because I ride them together all the time, I ride them at the same time, so they're both getting out, we get them both out, we get them both groomed, get them both saddled, and then I ride them one at a time. But if I should only get one out and leave the other one in the pen, that one left in the pen is generally going to be running up and down the fence, whinnying, um, kind of working himself up into a state. Now, um, so that's when people usually start getting get, getting right. frustrated. Right. And, um, there's a few things there that you can do. First of all, I think it's interesting that it's almost always the horse you leave behind that's the problem and not the one you take <laughs> out. So a horse has, because of this gregarious herd-bound nature, they have this desperate, desperate fear of being the one left behind, of being banished from the herd. And I don't know about you, but I used to have a nightmare when I was a little kid that you would wake up, I would, like, my parents, my whole family would drive away and leave me sitting on the curb. Oh, laying. <laughs> you know, yeah, I always, had this, I always had these different iterations of that dream that involved being left behind. And, um, but horses have this really profound fear about that. And so, it, and that's why, too, have you ever noticed how when a horse trailer comes on or off the property, all the horses get excited mm-hmm. uh, because they've come to relate horse trailers to horses leaving and coming and going and, and, um, and or that feeling of being left behind when that horse trailer pulls out right, and, right. Uh, with, with their buddy in it. And, um, so anyway, the, the, and then the one that you took out to ride might be distracted. He's looking, you know, you're asking him, to uh, let's say work on your reining pattern, and he keeps looking over at the his friend, or calling out, or you know pulling his circles towards the gate, um, all because he doesn't want to um, be separated from his friend. So, what do we do about that? Well, first of all, if I've got a horse left behind in a pen that's running up and down the fence and working himself up into a dither. 
and and um, r- r- you know grooving out a rut right, along the right. fence. Um, he is damaging his emotional state and he is damaging his physical state. And so I don't let horses do that. I would, assuming it's a trained horse, I would take that horse and tie him up so that he couldn't run up and down the fence and run himself into a state of, of panic. And okay. in most instances when you do that, the horse, he's still going to be smoking mad because he's separated from his friend. But because he can't run up and down the fence, and, and, it's, and he'll, he'll kind of grow tired of it, and he'll revert to what he knows how to do, which is hopefully to stand quietly when you, when you tie him up. Right. As to the horse I'm riding, um, I don't let horses look, uh, look around when I'm riding them. I scold them for that. Um, I am always aware with every horse I ride at every moment when they're pulling towards the gate or when they're trying to control the path they're on instead of listening to what I'm telling them. And then I do what I need to do to, to reestablish obedience from that horse. And I think what happens a lot with, with people and their fairly well-trained horses is these horses get away with a lot of little behaviors. They, they slow down at the gate, speed up when you turn towards the gate. They look, at, look out the gate or look over at their friends. Um, and any of those behaviors, had they been addressed with that horse early on? No, you don't get to get a look around. No. Okay, well, if, you're, if you have that much time on your hands, maybe we should go do something a little harder. Right. Talk and figure H. Um, so also, you know, we have to establish some ground rules for our horses. And, and it's our fault when we keep, our, keep two horses together all the time, 24-7. Hmm. They come to believe that that's the way it's always going to be and they feel a sense of injustice when you separate them. So we have to teach our horses that it isn't always going to be that way. Right, right. Um, sometimes you're going to have to go over here and stand there by yourself. No harm will come of you. I will take care of you. But you're going to have to give a little bit here too. And so we look for ways that we can separate those horses. Um, we look for ways to, you know, encourage their... Um, focus and performance when they are separated and then only bring them back together when both horses have accepted that separation. So we have to kind of um, take some responsibility for that too. That makes sense. And, and that happens just around, even you know, here with just having two. There's the times when the farrier comes or, you know, you want to ride one and not the other, and they need to be okay that, hey, you go in the back pen for a while and I can move you around and be separate and and do different Mm -hmm. things. So to actively practice those before you need to separate one for the farrier or to work is is probably a great idea to to work into your routine. Sure, and that that horse you're not getting out, if you will take him, put him in some a, a safe and comfortable place to be tied, and by that I mean we're not going to tie him out in the hot sun, you know, let him stand there and bake for three hours. Right. Um, but a comfortable and safe place for him to stand tied. Now you're working on that horse learning uh, to stand tied patiently. He's not running up and down the fence, but he's also working on this skill he needs of, of patiently waiting and um, so you're kind of killing two birds with one stone there and you can tie him um, you know we have a for instance when we're 
riding in our indoor arena, generally all the horses are inside the arena, but we do have a hitching rail outside the arena, and we put horses out there, um, you know, regularly say, okay, sorry, but today you're going to have to stand out here for an hour by yourself, just, just to remember, sometimes you're going to have to do this, and um, so it's good to keep, keep those skills um, in your horse. Sure. Good. Julie, I think that helps a lot. All right. Well, thank you very much. I'm Heidi Malacco. I am here today with Desiree Johnson, the owner and designer of Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. And Desiree, you have a pretty interesting story being a rider of why you wanted to create the perfect jeans for people to ride in and why there was such a need for something that felt good in the saddle. Tell me a little bit about how you got started. Well, hello, Heidi. Thank you for calling. Yes, I do. Um, this all started uh, a few years before we bought the company. Um, I was uh, very lucky to have been able to have my own stable. Um, right. I had three stalls and I uh, had a few event horses in training and my own ring and I was teaching and because I'm an event rider, okay. I was doing a lot, of, uh, a lot of setting up jumps and grooming the ring and, you know, the PP&D, the poop pick up and drag and uh, all, all the manual labor that goes along with uh, four acres of mowing and uh, gardening and all of that, being a wife and the shopping. And, and I was in my tack room one day, and uh, the br- I was taking my breeches and boots off yet once again. Right. And I thought to myself, uh, there's got to be a jean out there. I need some blue jeans that I can also ride in. Right. Because I do so much teaching. I jump up on a horse for 10 minutes, then I jump down, and I have to set up jumps. And, the, the, you know, the breeches just get get thrashed. They're too nice to work in. I mean, to really, really work in. So I went to my local ranching home. Now, remember, I'm an English rider. So I went to a a store, specialty in Western, 20 different styles of Western blue jeans. And I asked the lady, I told her, I said, I want your top of the line Western riding jean. Not going to say the name of it because I don't want to smash anything. Sure, sure. She took me to the top of the line and I looked at them, and I looked at the seat area, and I saw that lump, but your best riding jeans. She said, yes. And I said, well, these aren't riding jeans. And she looked at me, she kind of blinked, and I said, there's this big lump in the crotch seat area, and that's the whole reason why I'm here is because I can't ride in country western dancing jeans. I need a riding jean. And she said, well, this is, this is it. And so I... You know, I went home and I told Eric, I said, you know what, I'm going to start my own business. It's going to be called Designed by Desiree. And I told him my story. And what I did is I went online. And at that time, I didn't find anything like what it was that I wanted, but I did find a pattern, a book pattern. So I ended up, to make a, a long story short, I made three pairs of these little sweatpants. Or, you know, one seamless inside, right. seam up the front and the back. And they were basically little sweatpants with little knee pads. And I wore those little jeans. I, wore, I made a corduroy pair of winter and a lightweight jean material for summer. I wore them out <laughs> two years or so. Wore them holes, holes. And what I loved about them is they were short, you know, right up to the ankle. I could stick them in my English boots. And then I would take my boots off. And I could work in these little jeans pants all day long and I could go grocery shopping and I could get down in the dirt and garden and do the mowing and move my jumps 
So finally they, they wore out, and it was around Thanksgiving time, and uh, I said to Eric, I said, there's got to be somebody who has thought of this idea. I can't be the only one. So I sat down with Mimosa at the holiday time, and I found Smooth Stride Riding Gene Company. And the mission statement and the explanation was exactly what I was looking for. And they were interested in selling the company, and Eric and I had a powwow, and we said, let's do it. And this thing that we were, we didn't know anything about the manufacturing clothing business, nothing. I know it was really the learning curve was incredible. The inventory that we bought that we thought we were going to be able to buy was all messed up. It wasn't graded Mm. properly and didn't fit anybody. So we basically started from scratch. I redesigned this incredible already existing jean that had the seamless inside and was a boot cut. And I made it I'm, I recreated the whole, uh, basically the waist, contoured waistband. The grading is correct. The rise is correct for riders, for mature riders, not teenagers with, you know, that weigh 115 pounds. Mm-hmm. They're designed for women who have either had kids or not, but have lived with their bodies and, you know, for, for mature women. Have the curves that they are supposed to have once they have reached adulthood. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Now, tell me, what do you mean by the grade? Is that the way that the shape changes up around your waist? Well, for instance, when we got the inventory, I had these tiny little rises and huge legs. So the legs didn't match. So the lower part didn't match the upper part. So if you have a size 10 jean, it is graded size 10 the whole length of the jean. And that's... uh, it's a, there's a science to it. And okay. so our genes are, you know, we hired, literally hired a specialist to grade the patterns correctly. Okay. So, yeah, there's a lot of math. You've learned lots of terminology about this. And, and so the big thing about these that makes them for riding, what would you say are your, your top features that make them for riders, not just for wearing on the street? But you could do both. Yes, you could. The main thing is that cross lump and the seat area has been removed. Literally, they're, they're just like uh, how they build English riding breeches only. Uh, they're Western boot cut. Second thing would be the rise in the back. It's hard to find a blue jean out there that calls itself a riding jean that has a, a correct um, rise. The contoured waistband, so it's just not a straight piece. It's also curved to shape to fit women's curves. And the stretch, it's a perfect amount of stretch. We have a special process that they don't bag out, so we've eliminated the bag out problem. So this jean that you buy will be the same size within eight hours or two days or three days. They don't, you just don't put them in the washing machine and they snap back and then bag out again. So if they don't fit, that probably means that you gained a little weight. (laughs) (laughs) And and I'm imagining what this means when you're actually on a day-long trail rider, like with you with endurance riding I grew up riding western we always rode in jeans and I remember on longer days like the inside of your leg it'd be a little chaff but that's just what you had and I think it's interesting to hear you say with that English or endurance perspective everything you're thinking of has to do with how can I wear this all day be comfortable and make it through the miles right sure literally there are some of us that we get in the saddle after 10 minutes I was not comfortable so this it's 
also for instructors, for instance, who just get on, who are teaching all day long, they need a safe place for their phone for emergencies because we have a beautiful old, you know, classic welt pocket on the top of the right side that mm-hmm. is, uh, doesn't have any closure to break or anything, and it fits in snugly so it's not going to flop around. So even for instructors who have to get on a horse and just demonstrate something for 10 minutes and get back off again. Right, so. and feel comfortable in what you're getting down. Because I know when I have ridden English and you're in your breeches and sometimes you're like, whoosh, should I not? I, want, I don't mind riding these in the saddle, but I definitely don't want to go in public in them. So I think that's a, a great aspect too, something you can be comfortable in, but you can get on and off and still do whatever you need to do. Sure. Yeah, I I was joking in another interview I did that you could be a lawyer with a blazer in an office and then you could go straight to the barn and you wouldn't have to change your pants all day long. And thinking about the rider, not somebody that's coming from the fashion world and how to make those look good at the barn, which they look good. All the jeans can look good, but mm-hmm. how can you find something that's going to keep you comfortable in the saddle, not have that big seam on the inside right where you're trying to have contact and right. communicate with your horse with your leg position. Feel good no matter what you're doing. I spend so much money on equipment for our horse. And so I really feel like this is a, a very valuable piece of equipment for for riders finally. Good. Well, thank you for taking this on and figuring out something that's going to be good for a lot of riders. Thank you, Heidi. Thanks for listening to Julie Goodnight's Horse Master Academy podcast presented by Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. Check out SmoothStride.com and find them on Facebook to thank them for making this podcast possible. Also, be sure to visit JulieGoodnight.com slash podcasts for the full library of audio interviews you can listen to in the car or at the barn.